Have you ever shake, shooken, shaken, shook? Gosh, I'm really bad with uh, grammar right now. Anyways, you get what I'm trying to say. Someone's hand, and uh, you say, hey, how's it going? And you expect, you know, oh, I'm, you know, good. Things are good. Uh, whatever you might expect. Um, and the person says, better than I deserve. And if, if you like, there honestly are a few people who just, that's their default response now. Like if you talk to people on the patio, there's a few gentlemen who if you shake their hands, that's just what they say. Oh, better than I deserve. Any, anybody or am I the only one? You've, that's happened to you before? Someone has said better than I deserve. I don't remember the first time I heard that, but I do rem- remember being younger and hearing people saying that and thinking like, well, what do you mean? Like, what do you deserve? <laughs> like, what, what do you... What do you deserve? Do you deserve something like worse? Like I just did, I didn't understand why people were saying this, and I also didn't understand why people at church were always the ones to say this. Like typically, if you're on the street and you ask someone, they don't usually say that. It's more people at the church who say, "I'm doing better than I deserve." But then one day, someone said this to me, and I started to really think about, okay, like why are people? What does that mean? Why do people say that? And then I realized, like it's it's pretty theologically correct. You're doing better then you deserve. You think about what, what do we deserve, and then you think about all of the things that we do have that we don't deserve. When you think about the way that God, in his love and in his wisdom, just in his character, the way that he treats us, the way that he treats you and me, he treats us with favor and with kindness that we just simply don't deserve. We do not deserve the way that he treats us. We don't deserve the blessings he gives to us. We just don't, we don't deserve it. And we know that we don't deserve it because of how sinful we are, what the Bible says about uh, the truth of, of who we are. Yet God continues to just lavish blessing after blessing and favor and merit to us, to, to everyone, Christians and non-Christians alike. And the truth is we just don't, we don't deserve it. And so... Tonight we're looking in Judges 13, we're going to talk about God and his character and the way that he treats his people, and what I want us to see, first of all, is that he treats us in ways that we just simply don't deserve. And then I want us to think about, okay, he treats us in ways that we don't deserve, and then his character, the way that he treats us, it, it requires or or it deserves a proper response from us. We should respond in certain ways to God just because of the favor of the good things that he gives us. And I want us to really think about this tonight because if you don't think about what has God done for you, what is God doing for you, how is he blessing you, how is he taking care of you, then we can just walk through this life taking all the blessings of God for granted. And that's such a terrible thing to do, that, that people that people like us who say that we've put our trust in Christ, that we are his ambassadors on earth, and we go through our days taking all the blessings and all the kindness that he pours out on us, and, and we just take it for granted, and we don't really think about it. So I want us to realize tonight, and I want us to respond appropriately to the undeserved favor that God is lavishing on us, that God is showing us. 
So like I said, we're in Judges chapter 13, so open up your Bibles there to that chapter. We're doing only one chapter tonight, but get ready because next time we're doing like three in one. So we'll do one tonight, um, which means technically it should be shorter, but we'll see. I don't know. Uh, if you can remember all the way back to the first couple sermons that we did in Judges, I told you and, and I warned you that when you're reading the book of Judges, you have to be really, really careful with it because there's a lot of crazy stuff that happens in the book of Judges. There's the tent peg lady, and there's Gideon and the fleece, and I mean, just crazy stuff, right, that happens. And there's this temptation to take the crazy stuff and to run wild with it, and to just throw all these random applications and say, oh, this happened, so we should do this, and we should do that, and we should do that. But the first couple chapters of Judges, remember, there's two introductions, and these two introductions to the book, it teaches us how we need to interpret the entire book. And I warned you that if we start to interpret the book outside of these introductions, then we're in dangerous ground because that's not what the author intended. That's not what God intends for us to do with the book of Judges. So I want to call your attention back to the theme of Judges and the, and the, the, the reason, the, what God is doing. And what I said and what I'll say again is God is the main character. God is the main character of the story of the whole Bible. It's about him. And the theme that we're looking at is him and his salvation. That's what Judges is about. It is God, a faithful God, in the way that he treats a faithless people. That's Israel. That's you and me. And so we're going to talk about Samson the next couple weeks in his life. But I want you to remember that even though Samson does some cool things, and there's, like, there's four chapters about him and his life, and there's a lot, he's not the main character. God is the main character. And God's salvation is the main theme, not just in this story, but in the entire book of Judges. So we've got to remember these things. So look, don't pay too much attention to the details that you forget the main thing. And the main thing, again, is the activity of God. We've got to ask ourselves, what is God doing in these verses? What is God up to here? So look with, you, look with me now, Judges chapter 13. We're just going to read verses 1 through 7. Um, again, probably I'm not going to read through everything. We will summarize bits of it, but we're going to read verses 1 through 7. And once again, you're not going to be surprised by how this begins. Chapter 13, verse 1. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. 40 years of oppression by the Philistines now. Then there's this quick jump into verse 2. There's a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful, and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God, very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, Behold, 
You shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. So like I said, chapter 13 begins with this unfortunately all too familiar phrase that Israel, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then God, faithful to his word, as he said he would do, he hands them over to be oppressed. And this time he hands them over to the Philistines. But this chapter is unusual. We're starting to get into some really unusual territory. Remember we talked about the cycle and how you were going to see certain things happening, like the, uh, the, the sin and then the oppression. And then normally what happens next is some kind of crying out. But now we don't see that. We don't see any crying out by Israel. We don't see any repentance, which we already said a couple weeks ago that we, we think that we can gather that any crying out that Israel has done has not been real repentance. They're crying out because they're miserable. They're groaning because of their oppression. They want out from the oppressive hand of their enemies, but they're not really repenting. But here, in chapter 13, after 40 years of oppression from the Philistines... They don't cry out at all. They don't say anything. They don't direct any words to God. They're just stuck where they are. Doing nothing. They've gotten used to it. They're at a new low point. They're, they're content in their oppression. And I want you to see how sad that is. At least beforehand, they were coming to the point where they were crying out and at least acknowledging God and acknowledging his existence and saying, will you help us? But now they're not saying anything to him at all. I want you to think, what would you expect God to do when no one is asking him for help? When not a single person is praying not a single person is asking for help when no one sets their heart towards him, when there's not a single person around who's confessing sin and asking God for help. No one is crying out to him for deliverance. What would you expect him to do? If you're like me, you would expect him to just leave them. To say, you're not crying out, then okay. I'll leave you until you begin to cry out. I'll leave you until something happens, until you address me. But that's not what God did to Israel. God, the same God, I want you to just listen to this. The same God who handed Israel over to the enemies. That's what he did. This is his activity. We're talking about we've got we to follow the activity of God. This is God's activity. He gave them over. This is not just a cause and effect or some domino thing. God said, I will do this if you do not, if you do, not do what I say. I'm going to hand you over. And he took them, handed them over to the enemy. They're not crying out. They're not repenting. They're not doing anything. The same God who did that comes in and rescues them. For no, no reason of the Israelites, of themselves. No crying out, no asking for help, nothing's going on except God has compassion for these people and he moves in and he rescues them. So God decides to send a messenger. He sends the angel of the Lord, which is God himself. He's there. And he says to this woman, you shall conceive and bear a son and he shall begin to save Israel. I want you to see that God's grace for Israel 
God's grace for everyone, it's unmatched. The grace that God has for people, for his people, it's, it's amazing. It's incredible. God is essentially saying to Israel here, you've done nothing but reject me. You've done nothing except ignore me and bow before idols and, and commit deviant sexual immorality. You've done nothing but become Canaanized and, and marry the pagans and do everything that I said not to do. You're not even acknowledging my existence anymore. But I'm working for your salvation. But I've planned from the very beginning to rescue you from the hand of your oppressors, to give you grace, to show you grace. And he shows up here to this barren woman, this woman who can't have kids, and he says to her, you're going to have a son, and your son is going to save Israel. Don't you see the grace of God there? So here's the way that the outline is a little bit different, as you can see. Right, I've got respond to God's, and then you see a bunch of words. Right, here's the first point. You need to respond to God's grace with amazement. I want you to respond to God's grace with amazement. In the Old Testament, when a barren woman shows up, that's indicating that something incredible is about to happen. This, this story, this, this little narrative here of the barren woman who an angel shows up, this happens multiple times. And when you read this, this is an indication of, okay, you need to pay attention because God's going to do something incredible right now. And he does. He tells this barren woman, not only is he going to perform a miracle and give her the gift of a child, but this child is going to be their savior. Is going to begin to save Israel from the hand of their oppressors. So the angel of the Lord shows up in a hopeless situation and begins to offer hope. Hope to this woman who wants to have a child. Hope to Israel because they're being oppressed. And she, Manoah's wife, she's nameless, by the way. She doesn't have a name, but that doesn't mean she's not important. She's extremely important to this story. She's nameless. And in her response is incredibly appropriate. She hears this message from the angel of the Lord, and she quickly runs to her husband. I'm imagining joyfully running to her husband just to report what the angel just said. She's amazed by this. This, this person, by the way, she doesn't know as an angel of the Lord yet. They refer to the angel of the Lord as a man. This, they say this man, and she says he's, he's like a prophet. He has the appearance of an angel, but they, she doesn't actually know for sure who he is yet. So she runs to her husband and says, a man of God came to see me. Maybe he's a prophet. A man of God came to see me. His appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. She's in awe. She's amazed by what's happening. And he said to me, you shall bear a son. And this son that the angel is talking about is going to be unique. This son is going to grow up as a Nazarite. Nazarite means devoted or consecrated. So they would take this Nazarite vow and they would consecrate themselves unto God for a limited amount of time. But as you can see here, this is not a limited amount of time. This is God saying, your son is going to be a Nazarite for his whole life. Samson, your son, is going to be set apart and consecrated to me for his entire life until he dies. And then the angel of the Lord says, you need to stay away from unclean things. You need to stay away from, from wine and strong drink, strong drink and other unclean things. And, and um, 
then he says, your son shall begin to save Israel. And of course, she's amazed by this message. She is so amazed by what's happening that she doesn't stop to think, to ask any personal questions. She doesn't ask the, this, this man, as far as she knows, he's a man, right? She doesn't think to ask him anything. Who are you? How do you know? Where are you from? Can you give me any more information? All she heard was these, these words, and she's amazed. She takes off running to tell her husband what she heard. So look, I want you guys to see that the appropriate response to the grace of God is sheer amazement. That's the appropriate response. Whenever you can recount God's grace on your life, you should be amazed. To be amazed is to be greatly surprised or to be astonished. You should be left in amazement, astonishment at the grace of God because in this context, in reading here in Judges 13, it is truly astonishing. It's shocking that God would show such grace to these people. The amount of grace, the, in, the intense, amazing grace he's showing to Israel, it, it is shocking. Like, if you've been following along in Judges, or if you know the story, then you know that these people are messed up. These people have done some really bad things, and they just keep getting worse and worse and worse. And listen, it's going to get worse. The stuff that happens at the end of this book, is ju- it's shocking. It's, it's sick. It's gross, the stuff that happens. It's, it just gets worse. So whenever you read about the grace of God, when he sends this judge, this savior to be born to Israel, as readers of this, we should be amazed. We should go, whoa, wow, that's incredible. They don't deserve this at all. They've done nothing except spit in God's face and reject him over and over and over, yet he's going to go and and give his grace to these people as readers. I'm just talking about readers of what has happened. We should read that and go, whoa, that's amazing. It's incredible that God did that. It's amazing that he did that. And you know, it, it makes sense that you would have thoughts like, I can't believe that God would do that to them. I can't believe he would do this for them. Because they don't deserve it. It makes sense for us as modern day readers to read this and to think, that's amazing. Like, I kind of can't believe that God is showing his compassion like this to Israel because they just don't deserve it. But listen, just as you are amazed, as you should be amazed that God would save Israel, every Christian today, modern day, every Christian should be even more amazed that God would extend his grace to save them. So let's make that even more personal. You guys, you and me, Christians in this room tonight, not only should we be amazed recounting God's grace to Israel, but when we think about ourselves, we should be even more amazed that God would give his grace to us to save us. You should be amazed by it. As you read the way that God dealt with Israel, it should remind you of your own life, your own story. You guys know these verses in Ephesians chapter 2, verse, starting in verse 1? This, this is you and me. And you were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, 
following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Christians, we should read those verses and we should just sit back and be amazed that that is who we once were dead in our trespasses and sins, children of wrath, following Satan, but God, being rich in mercy, he saved us with his incredible grace. Gracious, merciful, and loving, he saved you. So if you have put your trust in Christ, you should be amazed every day. I'm not just saying that for dramatic effect, by the way. I mean what I'm saying. We should be amazed every single day of the grace that God has extended to us. When I was in high school, uh, homecoming week was a huge deal. Is that a thing in California? I'm, I know I ask that a lot. I'm still learning, but like, you guys have homecoming week and like pep rallies and like games, class games, you do stuff like that? Okay, well, when I was in high school, that was like, that was like the, the biggest week of the year. And I'm just going to be completely honest with you guys. I took it way too seriously. <laughs> way too, I'm ashamed, it's foolish, but I took it way, way too seriously. So it was homecoming week. I think it was like my junior, maybe my senior, probably my senior year. I took it, uh, anyways. Senior year, um, homecoming week, the, the football game is that week, competitions and the classes, you know, it's, it's really awesome. Um, and, you know, just another side note, like, you, when you're there, like, you think, like, it's the biggest thing in the world. You're like, this is so important, like, such a big deal. And you graduate high school, and you realize no one cares. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you're like, well, I spent all that time and energy, and, like, and literally, like, my parents don't even care. <laughs> Anyways, homecoming week is happening. And uh, we would have the classes compete against each other. And we were seniors, and we were like, we're going to win. This is going to be awesome. And they would, after every day or every event, they would have a scoreboard, and they would put which class is in the lead of the week. Well, after this game that seniors, we thought we won, or it was like a costume competition. I don't know what it was. We were like, oh, we got this. We're winning. And we went, and the juniors were winning. And, like, that's bad news because seniors just hate the juniors, of course. The juniors are winning. And so that's bad news. And uh, then you have to go to class. After you've played these games, you have to sit in class. And you're like, I can't pay attention to this. This is worthless. The homecoming week is where it's at. Like, you know? So I'm in class. And then I look out the, the door. And I see a group of my friends in the hallway. And I can tell that they're, like, strategizing about homecoming week, you know? And I was like, oh, I got, I got to get out there. But I knew that if I just asked my teacher, who was a substitute, by the way, if I could go out there and just talk about homecoming, she'd tell me no. Rightfully so. Well, my buddy Ryan, he got up to go to the library, and I was like, oh, I'm just going to follow him to the library. So I got up, and I walked out the classroom behind him, and he looked at me, and he goes, dude, what are you doing? I was like, I'm following you to the library. 
I should have listened to him. He looked at me and he said, it's probably not a good idea. I was like, oh, that's fine. So we get halfway down the hallway. He gets to the library. I turn around and I go to talk with that group of my friends. And I was right. They were strategizing about homecoming week. So we're talking about like, oh, we're going to beat the juniors. We got to do this tomorrow. We got to bring our A game. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, then Ryan comes walking back down the hallway from the library. And I was like, oh, I'm going to follow him in. Yeah, I, like teacher's never going to know. So I follow him into the classroom and he goes and sits down. And the substitute teacher, she looks at me and she goes, Jacob, where were you? Guys, I lied to her. I was like, I, I, was, I was with Ryan in the library. And he like looked at me and like, I thought he was going to tell me, but he didn't. Um, and she was like, you didn't ask me. I was like, oh, I know, I'm, I'm sorry. You know, she's like, okay, go sit down. And so I sat down and I'm like, okay, we're good. Like, I got away with that. A few minutes later, the substitute teacher calls me up to the desk. And she says, I want you to look at my computer screen. And it's an email from the librarian. And she emailed the librarian and she says, hey, was Jacob, I went to a really small private Christian school, by the way, so like everybody knew everybody. And so the, the librarian, she, the substitute, emailed the librarian and said, was Jacob Mock in the library with Ryan? And she responds, no, I didn't see him. And she's showing me this email. I'm caught like dead to rights. Like she knows I wasn't there. And she just looks at me and she's like, why, why did you do that? And I was like, yeah, I lied. I'm really sorry. Shouldn't have lied. I wanted to go out. I wanted to go talk to the people in the hallway. And she just kind of looked at me. She's like, you know, that was really wrong. It was bad. I was like, yeah, I know. And I'm thinking, like, I'm about to get in a lot of trouble because, like I said, this is a small private Christian school. This thing, it's a, it could be a big deal. Like, administration would take this really seriously. And I'm thinking, like, oh, no, my parents are going to be in so much trouble. I'm going to get, like, suspension. I lied to this teacher. And the substitute teacher, she says, you know it was wrong. I can tell that you feel bad. Don't do it again. Just go sit down. And that was it. That was it. I was like, I can't believe it. I can't believe this. Like, that's crazy. I should be in so much trouble. I should, I should have, like, th this should be a lot worse. The point of me telling you this is that I was in a situation where I deserved punishment. Like, I, I, I should have gotten in trouble. But my substitute teacher, for whatever reason, decided to give me grace. And I think that I was, like, visibly amazed by the grace that she showed me. Like, I could not believe that she wasn't sending me to the principal. And after that, I was like, okay, I can never do that again because of how shocked and amazed I was by the grace that she showed me. Now, obviously, when we talk about Ephesians chapter 2 and what we were and dead in our trespasses and sins, this is a much bigger deal than lying to a substitute teacher during homecoming week. So whenever Christians, whenever we recount God's grace on our lives and the things that he is saving us from, what we deserve and how, how bad we were, our amazement should just be so much more than, than being shown grace from earthly things like that. We should be responding every single day with just pure amazement that God would save wretched sinners like you and me. So Christians, we've got to stop treating God's grace so casually. We've got to stop having like casual conversations about it. We've got to stop acting like it's just this, this thing that sometimes it just, it, it just seems like not a big deal to us. But we need to be amazed. Our response every day should just be completely amazed by the grace of God. But listen, 
for those of you here tonight that are not Christians, I want you to see how truly amazing the grace of God is. That he would extend his saving grace to you through his son, Jesus Christ, even though right now, currently, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. And that right now, you are a child of wrath. And what you're doing is you're committing high treason against the holy God. Yet God's grace is extended towards you through his son right now. I want you to see how undeserved that is. And I want you to be amazed by that tonight. And not only do I want you to respond with amazement, but I want you to respond by putting your trust in Christ because of the undeserved grace of God that he is lavishing towards you. So God's grace is on display with how he dealt with Israel in Judges 13. Many other aspects of his character are seen. You can see the ones on your paper that we're going to talk about. So next we see God's kindness. I want you to see how kind God is to Manoah specifically, but also to his wife. So after the woman, after his wife, tells Manoah about the message she received, Manoah decides that he wants another visit. He wants this, this man, whoever he is, to come back, to give him a visit to explain what's happening. He wants confirmation of the words. He wants, he wants to, to, an ex explanation of what to do with this son, this Nazarite. He's got questions about what's going on. And so he prays. But wait, like, he didn't do that before. R remember, no one was crying out to God. And so this man shows up, and his wife says he <coughs> has the appearance of an angel, and he's, he must be a man of God. They're talking about God of the Bible. They're talking about Yahweh. And so now he decides to direct his attention to Yahweh, and he prays, and he asks God something. Finally, he says, God, will you please bring this man back? Please bring this guy. I want to talk to whoever this man is. Will you please do that? He says, Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to, to teach us what to do with the child. And I do not want you to miss what happens here. It says, God listened to the voice of Manoah. God listened. He heard the voice. He didn't just hear the voice. It says, and the angel of God came again to the woman. God heard his voice, and he answered the prayer. After 40 years of oppression, after all of this, this crap that they've been involved in, he, he hears and he answers the prayer. He does exactly what Manoah asked him to do. And the angel appeared to the woman again. And so she runs and, and she grabs Manoah, he says, he's here, come here. And Manoah goes and he asks, what's the child's mission? What does the child need to do? And the angel responds and says, of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. And then he repeats the instructions all over again to Manoah. Knowing, of course, that the woman already told Manoah exactly what happened. His story hasn't changed. He's saying the same things. But he's being kind to Manoah 
and his wife. And look, Manoah and his wife, they're not necessarily role models. It's not like these are the last two people and, and they found favor in God's like that's that's not that's not it. They're not role models. They're just as canonized as the rest of Israel. They're they're pagan, they're Canaanites at this point. I mean, they have trouble even recognizing that this is God. They should have recognized it was God from the beginning. They have trouble doing it because they're just so far removed from God and experiencing him and his word that they can't even put together that this is God visiting them. And then the woman, she had to be reminded of the law that prohibits a pregnant woman to eat unclean foods. This is normal Jewish law. This, this, is, this should have been regular. She should have known this. But God has to remind her of this. This shows like they're, they're just as paganized as everyone else. And God comes to them in his kindness, appears to them. He tells them that he's sending a savior. And not only that, he says he's going to do this by giving them a son whenever they've struggled to have kids. And then God listens to the voice of Manoah and he responds to his prayer. He does exactly what Manoah asked to do. He kindly repeats himself, confirms the message. God's kind character is seen here. And I just want to redirect you now and let you know that God has also shown his kindness to you and me in so many ways. And we need to respond to God's kindness. Here's point number two. Respond to God's kindness with repentance. I want you to just to take a few seconds and think about all the ways that God has shown you his kindness just today. Think about whenever your alarm went off this morning to right now, think about all the ways God has shown you his kindness in just that, in just the last 12 hours or whatever time you woke up. If you're having trouble, let me help you. You woke up. You're breathing. You're healthy. Healthy enough to be here. You've had food. Panda Express. You spent time with friends and family. You made it to church to have fellowship with your church family. God protected you as you traveled here from wherever you were at before. I could hand all of you guys a piece of paper. Actually, I, I, what I could do is I could say, I want you to take the piece of paper you have, the notes, and just start writing all the ways God has shown you his kindness in the last week, the last three days. And you could fill up front and back both sides of that piece of paper just by recounting the way that God has shown you his kindness. And yeah, I'm talking to Christians and non-Christians alike. God is so kind. He showed his kindness to Manoah here and he shows his kindness to everyone. And the Bible tells us, God tells us why. There's a reason why God is so kind. We see it in Romans chapter two. Listen to this. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God says, here's why I'm kind to you. To lead you to repentance. There's why God is kind to, to non-Christians. 
so that they would repent. They put their trust in him. Here's why God continues to be kind to Christians even when they sin. Yeah, so that you repent of that too. His kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So you need to respond to his kindness with repentance. This is the purpose of it. Like you may wonder, maybe you've wondered before, why is God so kind to me? Maybe you've been like these people who say better than I deserve. And maybe you've seriously pondered, God, why are you so good to me? Why are you so kind to me? Why? To lead you to repentance is one of the reasons. Or maybe you've had the thought about others in a negative way. People that you don't like. God, why do you continue to be so kind to them even though they live that way? Even though they reject you? Even though they're bullies? They're, even though they do this? Even though, even though, why, do you, why are you so kind? God, why at times does it seem like you're kinder to them than you are to me? So that they might be led to Repentance. That is why God shows his kindness. And that's how we should respond. So if you're here tonight and you've not put your trust in Jesus Christ, I want you to see, I want you to see that God continues to be kind to you so that you will respond with repentance and faith. God has offered his grace to you freely through his son. He continues to show his kindness to you every second of every day. Every breath that you breathe is God's kindness towards you. Giving you an opportunity to repent and put your trust in him so that you can find eternal life in Christ. God does not have to give you or anyone else another breath. He's not required to give you the blessings he's given. He's not required to uh, give you another day to live or another sunrise to enjoy or, or another day to spend with the people that you love. But he continues to do this for you. He continues to give you this so that you would repent because that's what he wants. You understand that? God desires for you to repent and to put your trust in him so that you can be made right before him and have a relationship with him and find eternal life there. He desires that. And that's how you should respond to his kindness. So look, don't waste any more time. <coughs> Excuse me. And to the Christians... Yes, you have repented in the sense that you've turned away in, in, that, in that final, that I'm turning away from my life of sin, I'm putting my trust in you, and you've done that, and you trust in Christ. But listen, you are required to keep on repenting. You should keep repenting of your sin. When you sin, you just confess it, and you repent, and you turn away from it. So look, maybe you're a Christian, and you've gotten lazy, or you've gotten complacent, Maybe your complacency has led you down patterns of sin. Maybe for the last week or two weeks you've been living in some kind of unrepentant sin and you know that's what it is, but you're just lazy right now and you kind of don't care. Wake up. God is continuing to show you his kindness so that you would repent. You need to repent of your sin. 
Each and every time you sin, each and every time Christians sin, you need to remember God's kindness towards you and then repent. You need to be living in a lifestyle of repentance. Every day, keeping with repentance. Keep going. I heard a story once. I don't know if this was like a conversation or a movie or a show. It might be like a popular movie that everybody has seen and I just can't really remember. I don't know, but here it is. Here's a story. There's this guy... And he wanted to get into this club or a, a gang or something. I don't know. I can't remember. But that's, that's what's going on. He wants to get into some kind of group. We'll call it a group. Probably was a gang because it's not a good story. But um, <laughs> The initiation to get into this group was that he had to befriend someone and, and to earn this person's trust for like months, like best friends with this person. And then once they're like really close and they're like best friends, he had to like steal a bunch of money or, or hurt the person or do something to betray this person's trust. And that was like how you get into this club, okay? Well, it, it continued, the, the story goes on. He, he finds a, a guy and they become friends and they're hanging out and like things are great. The, the guy has no idea that he's getting played. And then it gets to the point where it's been long enough and the people in charge are telling the guy, okay, now it's time. Betray him, steal the money, it's time. And the guy's like, okay, it's time. And he can't do it. And he's like, okay, I'll do it tomorrow. And he doesn't do it. And there's this inner turmoil of this person who can't bring himself to hurt this other person because this person has just been so kind to him. This person has been nothing but kind and compassionate and gracious to this person who has evil intentions. And the story ends, this person decides I'm not going to do it. And and he tells this group, I don't want to be in this, I'm I'm done. And and then goes to the person and asks for forgiveness and says, you're, you're the way that you treated me, your kindness towards me made me realize, like, I can't, I can't do that. I can't do this to you. I can't do this to anyone. I just want you to think about for a moment how kind God has been to you, how kind he has continued to be to you. And realize that the kindness is meant to bring you to repentance. That you need to Repent. Sorry, something happened to my app. Give me a second. It decided to update right in the middle of the sermon. I just freaked out. (laughs) All right, let me find my place. I'm sorry. So the angel of the Lord answers the question. The question Manoah asks. Manoah says, "I I I want to know your name. Actually, hang on. That's not where I was at. Really sorry, guys. God's kindness to you should have the same effect, right? Realizing that his kindness should lead you to repent. So you need to repent of your sin. You need to put your trust in Jesus Christ. You need to do that tonight if you haven't done that yet. And after the angel of the Lord repeats himself, Manoah tries to do something that at first glance is really odd. 
And it's actually very similar to what Gideon tried <coughs> with the angel, angel of the Lord. Manoah says, I want, can I detain you? He asked to detain the angel and prepare a young goat. So what he wants to do is have the angel stay and prepare this meal for the angel, who he doesn't know is an angel yet. He wants this man to eat this meal, to show honor to this man. And the angel says, if you detain me, I will not eat of your food, but if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. And at this point, especially right now, Manoah should have recognized the identity of the man. He should have known, you're not just a man. Well, you just, you just spoke directly for God. You told me what to do. He should have known, but he didn't see it. Just like the rest of Israel, Manoah has not had an experience with God like this. He does not know God. He has no idea what's happening. He can't see it. He doesn't know. And so Manoah, at this point, is most likely shocked by this refusal. Like, how, how could you refuse? I want to make you this meal. I want to show you honor. And then he's probably confused about this burnt offering thing. And then he says, what is your name? Can you please tell me your name so that when your words come true, we may honor you? He's still not getting it. He thinks he's talking to a man, and he wants to honor this man for speaking true words. So what I want you to see here is that God is extremely patient with Manoah. He's so patient here. You know, sometimes, I'm going to confess to you guys, sometimes um, it's really, really difficult to be patient with ignorant people. I'm talking about, <laughs> it's, it's, it's difficult to be patient in these types of situations, to, to show kindness and patience whenever you're trying to explain something to someone and you're like, I can't make this any more clear. What do you not understand about what I'm saying? And they're just not getting it. Like, they're just not picking up what you're putting down. Like, they do not understand what's going on, you know? It's really hard to be patient in those moments. Manoah is clueless. He's got no clue what's going on if I was talking to Manoah, I'd have been pretty impatient with him. I would have probably used sarcasm. But look, God did not treat Manoah like that. He was patient. Not only was he kind, but he was patient with Manoah. And then the angel of the Lord answers the question. In God's patience, he answers the question posed by Manoah. What's your name? And God says, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So then Manoah, just probably even more confused, goes and gets this, <laughs> this burnt offering ready. He puts it on the altar, and then a flame went up toward heaven from the altar. The angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. And here's the response. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. Now, 
They understand who this is. They understand what's going on. They've seen the angel of the Lord. They've seen fire go up from heaven, consume this offering. The angel of the Lord gets consumed by the fire. It's all gone now. And they fall to their faces on the floor in humility. Well, God is patient to you and me, just like he's patient with Manoah and his wife. And here's the proper response to God's patience. You need to respond to God's patience with humility. God's patience and God's kindness, they go hand in hand. A lot of verses in the scripture, they use the, the patience and kindness and forbearance all in, in the same for a couple sentences. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So I want you to consider for a moment God's patience towards you. First, God was patient with you before you put your trust in him. Every day that goes by that you haven't put your trust in Christ, God is exercising patience with you. He kept giving you days to live, air to breathe, when you were living in rebellion against him. And then the next thing, God is patient with you when you're disobedient. Even Christians, we disobey, and when we disobey, God exercises patience with us. And then also, God is patient with you in your questions and in your doubt, just like we saw with Gideon. God's patient with you when you're trying to figure everything out, whenever you won't move until you find all the answers, whenever you're demanding things from God, whenever you're just not trusting Him, God exercises patience toward you in these moments. And it's important that we understand that the God answers the question, what is, what's the name of the angel? And the angel, he says, why are you asking? For my name is wonderful. He was giving him an answer. The, the name of God, it's, it's wonderful. This idea is seen in Psalm 139.6 that says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Talking about God and his knowledge and his wisdom. So when we say God is wonderful, his ways are beyond me. Unattainable. He is wonderful. Grand. We can't reach him. And this grand, this wonderful God is patient with us. And his patience and kindness should lead you to repent, as we said. And it should lead you to respond in humility. So yes, when you repent, you are humbling yourself before God. You're, you're humbling yourself and you're admitting your fallen state. You're confessing your sin before him. You're, you're admitting that you need him and you're asking him to save you. But not just with that, you should also be humbly submitting to God in everything. Because when you put your trust in God, it's, it's not about you anymore. It's not about you. It's not about me anymore when we put our trust in God. And when you recognize how patient God has been with you and how patient he continues to be with you, it should humble you. We should be humbled at this. The God of the universe, creator God, savior God, he exercises patience with you. And just as Manoah 
and his wife fell on their faces before God in humility, in submission, we should do the very same thing. And so listen, when we talk about God being wonderful God, far beyond, we don't understand, we can't understand his ways. This is the God that sometimes we demand answers from, and we ask questions, and we say, God, if you could just tell me this, if you, if you would just do this for me, everything would be better. If you would just give me this, my life would be better. Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? Question after question after question, not understanding what he's doing because you're just caring about yourself over and over and over again. He's wonderful. <coughs> he's patient. And we need to remember that God says his ways are wonderful. And remember that he's being patient with us. And remember, we're not going to understand it. We don't need to understand it. We need to know that he says his ways are wonderful. And we should humbly submit. So you've got to respond to his patience with humility. Now, after Manoah and his wife hit the ground, that's when they realize that they've been speaking to the angel of the Lord. And he realized, oh, this, this, is, this is a lot different than what we thought it was. And rightfully so, Manoah tells his wife that they're going to die. Because we know that the Bible says, and they, they, they recall this, that you cannot see the Lord and live. So Manoah, he remembers that, and he says, oh no, we're, we're going to die. This is it. We're done. But Manoah's wife wisely says, if the Lord had meant to kill us, then he would not have accepted a burnt offering. If he meant to kill us, he wouldn't have told us these things. He wouldn't have shown us all these things, or he wouldn't have announced to us such things as these. So she says this to him. And the very next thing that we see in verse 24 is that the woman bore a son. We don't have anything in between. She says, no, he's not going to kill us. It's not what he meant. And then she had a son. She named him Samson. Samson grew, and God blessed him, and God's spirit began to stir him. In this last part here of chapter 13 of Samson's birth announcement, it shows, again, the faithfulness of God towards his people. They don't die. They live to see the son born. God's word comes to pass. The woman has a son the son that he said would begin to save Israel. So God is faithful. He's always been faithful, and he will always be faithful. He's faithful towards you and me. He always has been, and he always will be. And God's faithfulness should prompt a response in us all. So here's point number four. Respond to God's faithfulness with faithfulness. God is faithful. He is loyal He's constant and devoted and true to his people. So God's faithfulness toward you should motivate you and me as Christians to be faithful in return. You need to see all the ways that God has been faithful to you and say, God, okay, it's just going to motivate me to be faithful in return. But I want to look right now at one specific instance of God's faithfulness that would be really foolish for us to miss especially right now in the middle of Christmas season. Maybe whenever you read the opening verses in chapter 13, you made this connection already, you made this parallel. But whenever you think about what the angel says about Samson, he will begin to save Israel. 
that may confuse you at first. You might think, what does that mean? Samson's not the first judge, so did those other judges not begin to save Israel? Samson, is he the last? Like, what, what does this mean? He, you might think about these things. Haven't other of the judges saved Israel? Why, why is it him that's beginning to save Israel? But here's the more important question to ask. Who will finish? If Samson's beginning to save Israel, then who will finish the job? Who gets it done? And when you ask those questions and you start seeking the answers in the Bible, that's when you are reading the Bible correctly. God has sent another Savior. God has sent the perfect Savior. He sent the Messiah. He sent Christ. The one who would finish the job. The one who would supply salvation. Not just salvation from oppression from the Philistines, but the one who would provide salvation from sin and death and hell. Samson is just another man pointing to the God-man who would come. The God-man who did come. Jesus Christ. So God sent the Savior, and by doing so, he again proved his faithfulness to everyone. And not just in that, but I want you to continue to think about the way that God shows his faithfulness toward you every single day. He keeps his promises. He kept the promise to send the Messiah. He keeps his promises to never leave you or forsake you. He forgives you when you confess your sin. He's your strength when you are weak. He gives you wisdom when you ask. He gives peace when you're anxious. He is faithful to you. And you need to be faithful to him. So, one more time, I'll just say it like this. Christians, if you put your trust in Christ, you need to remember how faithful God is to you. It needs to motivate you to live faithfully toward him. And for those of you who have not put your trust in Christ, I want you to see that God sent the only one who could save you, the one who would finish the job of saving his people. So tonight you need to put your trust in that Savior because he alone can save. You're not going to find it anywhere else. There's no other religion that has any other answers, any, anything, anything better. You're not going to find it. It's only found in Christ. So repent and put your trust in him. Uh, let's pray. Um, when I'm done, we're not going to go to groups yet. We're going to do something a little bit different. I'll explain, but let's pray. God, thank you so much for your character towards us, for your undeserved favor that you've given us. God, I pray that we would respond appropriately to you. I pray that every person in this room tonight would put their trust in you. That we would find forgiveness in you and be made right before you. So God, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.